everyone, welcome to Office Hours with Cloud Posse, your weekly dose of insider DevOps trends, AWS news, and Terraform insights, all sourced from our SweetOps community, plus a live Q&A you can't find anywhere else. It's December 6th, 2023. My name is Eric Osterman, and I'll be your host. Real quick, I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. We are a DevOps accelerator for startups that helps teams who are overwhelmed with AWS. We do this by using our over 200 plus Terraform modules that have been battle tested and downloaded over 10 million times. No matter where you find yourself on this journey, we're here to help your startup launch better products uh, so that you can nail your value delivery every time. And if you or your team has been banging your head against the wall with underperforming infrastructure, just head over to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and we'll chart a roadmap for success for you. Worst case, you end up with a clear roadmap for shoring up your infrastructure. Best case, we co-build it with you and your team and empower uh, you in 90 days or less. So how can you maximize today's session? First off, our format is very informal. Engage as much as you'd like, ask questions, and if you're curious about any of our open source tools or modules, go for it. For those on the recording, we host these calls live, so don't miss out. Just go join us by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash office hours. Now, I do have one ask. If you find any portion of today's office hours valuable, please share it with your team. Just head over to youtube.com slash cloudposse to find the video or send us a short testimonial about the value you're getting in Slack, just go to slack.cloudposse.com. Remember, we're not just creating content here, we're trying to build a community and we can't do that without your help. So with that started, let's uh, jump into uh, some news and announcements that I found. Uh, first one is, um, it was shared, I saw Matt Gowie uh, found it on the uh, HashiCorp blog. Um, so at HashiConf, they announced an update to the Terraform cloud product, adding a concept of a stack. Uh, stacks are, you know, kind of common industry terms to represent um, a collection of resources. Uh, so that concept is natively supported now in Terraform cloud, allowing you to pass information between uh, different root modules. They talk about the organization of that and how to set that up in this document and introduce uh, the concepts. Uh, has anyone already started dabbling with stacks in Terraform Cloud? Not yet, it sounds like. All right. Uh, oops, another uh, small announcement was yeah, that uh, Gmail account you set up a few years ago, if you haven't been using it, it might uh, get purged. Uh, Google has been going through and deleting accounts that haven't uh, have been inactive for at least two years. So if you have any accounts that you really don't want to lose, uh, time to go and log in. Now, it might have already been deleted since I think this was supposed to happen on Friday. Last Friday. That, that part is particularly annoying because... Um a bunch of services that Google offers um, tell you that you can't you can't have um, them attached to a Google address that's part of a Google workspace. You have to be it has to be part of a Gmail account. Um, like Nest is an example of that. If you you use yeah. your 
your Nest account. So um, I had a couple of accounts that uh, that were specifically for that type of thing, and um, and I forgot to uh, I forgot to uh, log into one of them, and then it went away. So oh really? <laughs> yeah. How did you find uh, out? I went to log into the service and it was gone. And I was like, after two oh, years, you just spontaneously decided you were going to log in or after you saw the announcement? Yeah. No, no, no. After I saw the announcement, okay. I remembered, I thought I got them all. And then I remembered one more. And then I was like, oh, let me go see if I can log in. And it was gone. And I was like, oh, no, that's, that's not cool. So then I basically had to email the, the company telling them what happened and trying to prove my identity to them. Okay, but but it was a reversible thing. It was a um yeah, but because the company intervened, their support like agreed yeah. to switch my login to a different um <laughs> do a different like oh uh, okay so that account was login. but they switched uh, that product login to another one. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Verification makes sense. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, were you did you have mail forwarding set up on that account, and you just no. weren't logging in, or you didn't even have that? No, I mean it was I literally only created it specifically for yeah. the one thing that I couldn't log into, and I didn't want to tie it to another Google account that I had for that. So, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious if that applies to mail forwarding because I have some several accounts like that. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. If anybody knows if that applies to mail forwarding, because I have a lot of accounts, just like he said, <laughs> that forward the mail, I have no reason to log into them. And I've set up um, other account, delegated other accounts to send mail. So that's interesting. All right. Uh, next announcement was one you shared with me, Matt, um, I think. Uh, which was a new, or no, maybe I found this one. I don't know where I found this one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I also saw this. I don't, I can't remember what I shared and what I didn't share. So, yeah. 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 It, this was a little bit confusing to me because, well, as is not uncommon in AWS, they introduce one service that sounds completely redundant with another service instead of expanding the scope of the other service. So now there is the, um, how is it, what are they calling it? Uh, why am I drawing? Uh, AWS injection uh, service? No, I think that. No, so there's already a tool called Fault Injection Service, which was released like last year or something. This is yet another service, but I believe under a different name. No. Oh, I remember I'm the. I don't remember the name, but I know that the new functionality was that it can simulate like entire regional outputs or just certain AZs and or entire like accounts kind of thing. It was pretty, it, it uh, I don't remember what it was, it basically just expanded uh, capabilities. Okay. So was it just an expansion of FIS then? I think so. Uh, okay. Then that makes sense. Okay, I take back what I said. I was wrong. And I think previously it supported more like uh, like full outages of a region or uh, host level degradations like of disk, memory, and CPU. Uh, to Matt's point, this adds 
availability zone failures. And, and and also the I think the big announcement here was that it was multi-account now, so you can actually simulate like failures across mul more than one of your accounts at the same time, and then see what happens. So oh, that's cool. Yeah. Then uh, this one here was uh, expanding capabilities uh, with a new uh, application signals preview. Matt, uh, you want to talk about that one? Yeah, I, I think um, basically this is now um, Amazon kind of giving you the you know the four golden signals of uh, you know of. Uh, uh, DevOps thing from the um, from the site uh, for the SRE um, handbook that uh, you know that's kind of famous out there. I mean, they basically created a dashboard um, to be able to uh, to be able to see those things kind of out of the box for for your services um, using CloudWatch and a few other things. And I think that if you've looked now, you can. If you log into the console, you're constantly being prompted to create a new application um, as well, which I think is tying into that. So I think they're they're trying to do a lot of um, cross-service um, visibility uh, things and surfacing that. And my <clears throat> my speculation, although I don't know, is that this has something to do with um, you know with Datadog uh, taking a lot of revenue away from AWS uh, that they yeah. think that they can keep in house by offering some of the basic features that uh, that Datadog offers. So, so I think this one also has SLO. Um, you know, yeah, this is the one that has the there it is SLOs um, and focus on metrics uh, that are important to the business. So now you can do all of these things within. Um, Within AWS, you don't have to go to a third-party service to do it. Cool. Yeah, I look uh, forward to checking that out. Yeah, and I think if you read the last sentence of the, or second to last sentence of the first paragraph, that actually is telling you like they have stand, uh, second to last one, one before that, they have they're having standardized metrics such as you know volume latency and errors for each of your applications with pre-built dashboards. So. Um, they've already kind of, depending on the services that you're using under the hood, they've already defined what the appropriate metrics are that um, that map to each of those, you know, the golden signals like volume, you know, uh, throughput and latency and errors and all those kind of things, which is, seems like it will save you time. Um, I, I haven't really looked at this extensively, so I don't really have uh, a full review of it yet, but it sounds promising. Awesome. Let's see. Next, uh, next one was something that um, I was uh, digging around trying to figure out, like you know, what the heck. Anybody doing a lot of GitHub actions um, in a mono repo, you're going to run into this uh, problem. It's not a problem, but this limitation that your GitHub actions are all. Uh, they have to be in the .github workflows directory and they can't exist anywhere else in the uh, file system subtree, um, even within the subtree of .github uh, workflows. 
So you end up maybe with 20, 30 files, uh, all different workflows there. And your only option is to come up with some naming convention to try and tell them apart. Well, uh, fortunately, um, I found uh, somebody tagged uh, another uh, developer here, Andrew Kim, and uh, this is actively being uh, worked on. Actually, I think this was a product uh, manager or product owner. And uh, it was supposed to come out this quarter, but uh, now it's looking like next quarter. I guess I don't care so much as I know that I'm content with the fact that if it is coming out and being worked on, um, we can plan for that. Also interesting is uh, this is not on the uh, GitHub Actions roadmap anywhere. Maybe it's considered too small of a feature. Uh, can can I ask, you know, based on that, that, chat there yeah um it just says that he owns it and it's being worked on and it'll post more when it's ready for customers well yeah. i'm curious what leads you to believe that it's actually being worked like oh it was a <laughs> oh is there a different thing in there yeah there was more oh, okay here, sorry, I didn't expand that. Don't have oh, any yeah, yeah, uh, We're working on some UI improvements for the workflow list, and I yeah. wanted to include this, but then I realized that it needed to be separately. So, hoping to dig into it next quarter. Yeah. And that was three weeks ago. Yeah. Cool. So the first, the first one, uh, the first one didn't leave me with a lot of hope. It was like, yeah, 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 we're we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> but this this one sounds better. So. And I, uh, yeah, I didn't <laughs> confirm he is actually in GitHub staff. So, yeah. Ooh, they have a they have a unique badge. I never noticed that before. Oh yeah, yeah. Look at that. That's probably good. Oh, and look, they have the same problem we have. Anybody else yeah. suffering from this right now? <laughs> yeah. Emojis stop showing up on GitHub. Yeah. Uh, next announcement was this. Uh, anybody who's worked with some more mature CI platforms like Circle CI, uh, the ability to uh, exec into your jobs uh, or steps is invaluable for speeding up the debug process. So uh, GitHub is actually working on that. Um, it's apparently in beta, estimated for uh, this quarter. So. Uh, speak to your GitHub Enterprise uh, account rep if you want to get added to that, maybe. Yeah. This quarter, meaning uh, the next two and a half weeks. <laughs> well, I mean, in beta. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I assume that that means, um, yeah, that it's actually then developed to some degree. Uh, unfortunately, this is a enterprise feature, it seems like, so pony up. Um, last, uh, last one related to that. I was kind of, uh, reviewing the roadmap, trying to get excited about, you know, what's happening. Uh, I was excited about this, but then I saw status future. So uh, that to me is basically someday, um, moving from having been planned in 22 and then this year as well, and just got kept, kept getting kicked further down. This addresses well, one. Sorry. <clears throat> sorry. I, I was unmuted and I cleared my throat. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, this would address one of the big security concerns with GitHub um, actions. 
you're basically running all of these actions within the run your own code space and runtime uh, with access to that privileged information. And unless you're pinning to a SHA, and I mean, unless you actually inspected the code at that SHA that you also pin to, you really don't have uh, many assurances uh, of what that code is doing while it has access to your code. So uh, this adds the ability to publish your actions. This would add the ability to publish your actions to a registry where then, you know, there is, they're as immutable as you trust GitHub uh, would keep them immutable. And um, by pinning to those immutable artifacts, you can be more assured that things won't get injected, supply chain injection attacks. Built on, um, I'm guessing GitHub packages, but I don't think it actually goes. It comes goes. Yeah, well. it says in the first first sentence OCI or second sentence OCI on uh, top of GitHub packages. Hmm. All right, it's cool to see and how I it's think, uh, universal. Yeah, I think they. It looks like if you scroll down, it looks like they. It had previously been. On um, yeah, so they removed it for on from the GitHub Enterprise three point one zero roadmap and oh. put it on the public on the public roadmap. So yeah, seems interesting. So maybe this was going to be an enterprise feature, and now they're making it a more widely accessible feature. That makes sense. that's an interesting observation. Yeah, I didn't connect the dots on that. Cool. I'll keep an eye out on that. And uh, one more hangover from reInvent. Uh, I was just checking uh, today a little bit was an announcement that Lambda functions can scale up to 12 times faster uh, in units of uh, up to 1,000 concurrent executions every 10 seconds. And then after 3,000, uh, it scales uh, at a smaller increment, I'm guessing, to reduce the impact of potential DOS attacks. But... I guess I didn't realize that the numbers were 12 times lower than this previously. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other announcements, uh, potentially hangovers from um, reInvent? Any, uh, anybody who was at reInvent wanted to share uh, some highlights of their experience there? I got one thing out of there that um... Not an official announcement, but I heard from a, an EKS engineer and an EKS project manager that they're going to be adding uh, the auth, the AWS auth config map control to the EKS API. It's mm. supposed to be coming soon. They wouldn't promise a date, um, but that'll be really useful. It'll give you the ability to, um, when you create an EKS cluster, to um, define a principal to be the owner instead of it just defaulting to whoever's executing. Yeah, that's been a popular one. I remember seeing someone comment uh, from from uh, the AWS team somewhere, I think on one of those open issues on the roadmap or something. Nice. I, I'm pretty sure I actually saw either an announcement or like a, um, it's coming soon in writing somewhere too about that just recently, like either right before reInvent or during reInvent, I don't remember, so. Very cool. I bet they, they were probably trying to get it ready for reInvent and just couldn't make the deadline. 
So That's hopefully it'll be in the next few weeks. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. That'll be a welcome addition. Let's see in the Zoom chat here, if anything. Hmm. This was what you were talking about, uh, Matt. Uh, Craig shared the link, I think. Yes. Okay, cool. And I assume that that will be melded with the the Golden Signals dashboard thing at some point. Like now they're they're basically having you, they're allowing you now to take kind of like a sort of service-oriented view um, or business logic view or however you want to look at it, like over your your applications. So yeah. <clears throat> All right. Anything else? Otherwise, we'll move into uh, Q and A. Any uh, questions that we can get answered today? This is open ended. Um, if you're Matt, do you want to ask your question that you're grappling with? <laughs> See if anyone. Oh, still... I resolved it. <laughs> you resolved it. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing I was going to bring up is that I noticed today, you know, that Amazon Q, um, the the piece that's built into the console, at least, I don't know, they they've made it so hard to figure out how to talk about any of their products right now. But um, you can now in um, when you're in uh, the reachability analyzer, like uh, if you're doing things with um, with transit gateways and global networks and all those things that get pretty complex, which I'm knee deep in the middle of right now, um, you can actually in queue say, why can't I SSH into my instance from this VPC to that VPC? And it will basically like spin up a reachability thing to tell you what the problem is like which is pretty cool that's really cool yeah, yeah. i could see so, uh, that'll uh, enable uh triaging a lot more also yeah. really interesting i mean uh that's got to be a precursor to a lot of these other things i mean maybe obviously one reason they might be investing in um uh, what was it called the signals uh cloud watch signals is to take uh, a piece of the Datadog pie back into uh, CloudWatch, which makes a lot of financial sense, especially since uh, they're struggling scaling. But maybe another reason is also so they, they can provide uh, more of those kind of capabilities within Amazon to understand what's going on. And in order to do that, they have to have the data. You have to be doing the monitoring there. And that'd be a really awesome improvement. Yeah. Like, why is my HR application slow? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it can tell you, since you've now defined what the HR application is in that my applications dashboard, and you're now monitoring all the golden signals with 
that yeah. the cloud watch and all of its things, it can start to give you insights into those types of those types of answers. Pretty interesting. <clears throat> and then it can uh and then leading on to that eventually be able to self-heal, which would be pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. This is uh this is the thing Amazon desperately needs to become a little bit easier for customers. Yeah. Craig uh, says that he was also just trying the uh, reachability analyzer in Amazon Q today. Uh, probably the most useful thing about Q. Yeah, he, uh, he thinks they call it the reachability insights. Uh, could be. Yeah. I don't know. Before I would use that, I would have to click like 13, 15 times to to set up all the different like from and twos and all of that kind of thing. And half the time I would fat finger something or select the wrong instance or, you know, do whatever. And now this, now you can just ask it a question and kind of iterate with it, which uh, it's definitely useful. I'll have to try that out because I thought I was the only one, but I have never successfully used the reachability analyzer. And it made me feel really <laughs> Because after a while, I just gave up and just did it manually, like tried to debug the issues. But I don't know. I'll try the Q, the Q version. Yes, it helped me. It helped me today. I've been able to do it before, but usually it's, I'd say on average, uh, I probably have to do it, you know, 1.7 times before I get it right or something like that. Like it's, uh, it's definitely not, uh, it's definitely not that intuitive. All right, uh, Tim G has a question. Is there a recommended way to route private IPs of a load balancer? We'd like to route internal traffic direct to the Amazon load balancer instead of going out through our NAT and back via the internet gateway just to hit the same ALB. I believe private IPs could be looked up uh, off the network interfaces. Ideally, it would be nice if there was a DNS name that mapped to private IPs. Uh, as well as the DNS name that maps to the public IPs. I expected this to be easier. So actually, uh, every um, uh, Amazon load balancer has, um, when you resolve the Amazon name to that load balancer and you're using the uh, 169 dot whatever resolver inside your uh, cluster, your instances or whatever, it will automatically resolve to the internal IPs. Um, and automatically resolve to the external IPs if you're outside of AWS. And then if you set your DNS names as a C name to that load balancer name, or you're using alias records, I presume alias records would work the same way. C names definitely work, but alias records should do that too. Oh, dot two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's right. Yeah. I was going to say that it's dot two on your, on whatever subnet you're on. Yeah. I, can uh, correct me. I, my date, my uh, knowledge might be out of date uh, just for my own intellectual curiosity. You know, the um, um, IMDS uh, endpoint, that IP, uh, I thought that IP can also be used as a DNS resolver. Am I wrong on that? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the ID IDMS thing is a um, 
it's an HTTP endpoint, but maybe they also have some way of resolving over that. I don't know. Uh, Mark says that uh, he's seen it work uh, cross region, but not cross account. I can't testify to that. I don't recall. Well, how how do you have like a VPC peering or transit gateway or something between the two accounts? Transit gateway. Okay. Yeah. Um, your transit gateway has to be enabled for DNS. That's a that's actually an option for transit gateway. That's one yeah. of the things. I haven't specifically tried that scenario, but that's the only thing I could think of that never uh, that never understood that. But I think that that's what that um, transit gateway thing is for. I have some questions. Um, one is based on reinvent. I had heard about uh, lattice earlier on. I think at reinforce or something, and they they brought it up again quite a bit at the most recent reinvent. Does anyone know anyone that is actually using Lattice in production? <laughs> well, I recall saying last year, this was the most exciting announcement to come out of reInvent for me. And I'm still really excited about it, but yeah, I'm still on the armchair on this one. Yeah, I wasn't brave enough. I should have asked the presenter, hey, do you actually have any customers using this in production? Um, my other question is around. They have four case studies on the lattice uh, on the, the lattice uh, website of like companies that are actually using it and people um, like actual names behind it. So you could probably track one of them down and ask a question if you really wanted to know. Good to know. Yeah, I'll um, drop it in. Uh, I'll drop it in the chat for. There it is. <laughs> My other question is around EKS and multi-region. I'm looking into what this might look like for my org. And one of the things I saw was this article around a cell-based architecture as like sort of a different way to do multi-region than the way people used to do it before. Has, has anyone seen that article or has experience with, with what is being uh, referenced in, in that? I pasted a link in the chat to the article on the front. I can guess what the difference is because you used to be able to like federate your Kubernetes clusters so that actually the Kubernetes itself was aware of the other clusters versus truly making them share nothing and then maybe putting a load balancer in front like a global accelerator. But is that what this says? No. Yeah, that that diagram of what they're showing now is um, that's AZs in the same region, and then the supercells, I guess, is the thing that is showing cross region, right? Interesting. I mean, they. I think. I mean, it could be across regions or it could be across availability zones. I mean, one of the key things they show here is that this is a dedicated cluster, dedicated cluster, dedicated cluster uh, in each AZ, a, a standalone cluster. 
but I'm not understanding that the load balancer here is only going to one of them. I think I think it's going to all of them. Okay. I think that's what the cell routing layer is. Oh, the layer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, that uh, we've implemented similar ones with a global accelerator and then deploy dedicated uh, clusters. Um, there's no general answer. It comes down to a lot of the assumptions on your application architecture. Um, if you have uh, persistence requirements inside the Kubernetes cluster, your database is always gonna be the weakest link. Uh, can your database be uh, multi-region? Um, and if not, how do you get around that? Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's definitely like everything else. It's it's very specific to your context. So, yeah, curious if someone had experience with this different way that they're showing here, because that was the the global accelerator route was the route I was going to go. We already have everything set up for for that. We just haven't uh, actually gotten gotten around to setting up the cluster in the different region that you can now link uh, the accelerator to. So. But this example here doesn't address the multi-region. It's the multi-AZ. Yeah, it's, it's up, it's, if you go up above, there's like a, oh, if you super click that cell. supercells, that uh, one shows exactly. the, the cross-region one, yeah. Okay, and then they're using Route 53 for cross-region mm -hmm. global accelerator. Yeah. Okay. And there was actually a reinvent announcement about Route 53 automatic redirection of um, of traffic based on something in a faster in a faster way than it used to do, or something like that. I can't exactly remember the thing, but there was some announcement about Route 53 and improving that. So I wonder if it's tied into something along these lines. And, and I'm pretty sure it was using the cell terminology. That's what uh, that that's what uh, reminded me of it. Uh, one thing that uh, I would keep in mind if you are pursuing this is uh, the implications on your uh, continuous delivery and. Um, if you want your continuous delivery to be fault tolerant too. So it's all fine and dandy to deploy to four different clusters, you know, if they're all online, but how does it change or how is it affected if one of them is offline? Um, and if you're using something like Argo, that gets easier. All right. It's funny Maybe. you mentioned Argo because I was going to ask a question around that. We don't currently use Argo, but something that we're considering. Um, but then it pretty much looks like, you know, you either have the option of having one main Argo cluster that is kind of like your control cluster or mm -hmm. having graded in various clusters. I love the simplicity of having it in one cluster that then goes out to the others, but I can't shake just the, the fear of what could happen when that one cluster goes down. Yeah. Like, how so do the, I defend that position? Yeah, we've spent a lot of time uh, on this and thinking about it and uh, spent more time than I care to admit on actually implementing it. 
The there are three main patterns for Argo CD uh, from my perspective. One is uh, you have the centralized Argo CD, uh, which knows about all of your clusters. When you have that architecture, what's nice about it is you can see you know the global landscape of everything and where it's getting deployed, uh, changes getting promoted between um, environments. For example, the downside is as you said, it's like the Jenkins, uh, you know, master architecture where, you know, Jenkins goes down your whole organization goes to lunch and we don't want that. So the other problem with uh, that architecture is, uh, well, when you go to upgrade Argo CD, um, every single deployment in the organization goes down. So whoever wants to upgrade Argo CD uh, when it's uh, your uh, neck on the line, the other problem is if you want to install plugins in Argo CD or upgrade it, you know, anything requires a restart. Wait, we have active deployments going on. No fun. So, you know, one change, a change that you want just for testing some plugin in dev now affects the entire organization. So don't go that route. Oh, the third reason why you don't want to go that route is it's a pain in the butt to configure in an automated manner because that Argo CD needs to have administrative permissions uh, and manage deployments in other Kubernetes clusters. So orchestrating this whole thing uh, so that it can um, manage that other Kubernetes cluster um, is a little bit more cumbersome. The, uh, the second architecture is, um, well, let's have two or three Argos. We'll have one Argo CD for production tier, one for non-production. At least then you you address the issue of uh, doing some upgrades and uh, checking things out. Uh, but you still have the problem of adding your clusters to it. So what we've settled on, and we've been happy with uh, this decision, and don't regret it, is you deploy Argo CD in each cluster that it manages. And then Argo CD just works automatically with the Kubernetes cluster. It's polling or receiving updates automatically if through webhooks uh, when the uh, deployment repo is updated and synchronizes those changes. But you do have to log into I was yeah. going to say and, and number still, of like, Argos if you want to see it. <laughs> right, right. But I think it's worth it for me not losing my job in the future because I made a boneheaded architectural decision and, you know, break the company for like hours. So I don't know. We'll make the developers' lives easier in every other way. And they'll just have to have three bookmarks. Yeah. And I'll just throw this out there. I know, you know, so one of the huge uh, backers, uh, corporate backers rather of Argo CD is CodeFresh. Uh, I believe code, one of code, you know, CodeFresh has come a long way since uh, the beginning. They used to be predominantly a CI tool and now they've predominantly become, I believe a Argo CD front end. Uh, so one of the claims of fames for CodeFresh now is it can be, it can aggregate your Argo CDs uh, from a dashboard or UI perspective. So if that becomes an ultimate need, uh, then there's a SaaS for that. Thanks, that's helpful to think about. So uh, Adam also yeah. uh, agrees one Argo per environment. Yeah, and I've actually seen a few um, Grafana 
dashboards to kind of aggregate the view of all of your all of your Argo um, application deployments across all of your clusters, or at least the ones that are important. And then you can log into just a single Grafana to see that. And then in Grafana, you can have a link that links you out to the right cluster if you need to go and, and view details of what happened on that. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, <clears throat> just pointing out one thing Craig pointed out, uh, that sounds interesting. I haven't heard of that. An Argo cluster to manage Argo clusters was a popular paradigm at uh, ArgoCon last month. Uh, just wonder if, just wonder if you can see like all the applications from the downstream Argo clusters. That's interesting. Cool. Um, any other uh, questions we can get answered today? I uh, kind of had a question about how people are doing um, Terraform drift detection with their um, their kind of their Git repositories. Um, we have a lot of uh, Git workspaces, but we're kind of forced to do our Git our Terraform applies from our laptops. So we kind of have this problem very frequently where. Um, People are applying things, but don't forget to check in, or they check in things that aren't applied. Um, I know this is kind of something that Atlantis is good, where you actually have the a GitOps workflow that you're having Atlantis do your applies for you. But we're we're on that. We're sort of in a situation where we can't actually. We have to do the applies from our laptops, which isn't the greatest, but is where we're at and. Um, we've been trying to get Atlantis to work in a mode where it can like notify a Slack channel if there's any changes that aren't applied or aren't checked in. Is there ways that people have solved this problem or is it just kind of like you use a GitOps workflow for Terraform replies or you're kind of, you're behind the, the eight ball as it were? No, uh, you need drift detection regardless of any of the platforms you choose. Now, a lot of the platforms implement it for you, but let's say you, you're using Atlantis, great. You still don't, you can still, like you alluded to, you can still forget to apply some environment or things uh, or environments can change or things happen in the UI. And they don't aren't reflected, you know, in, in the uh, Git repo or your Terraform providers weren't pinned, and now some change uh, to the provider causes drift. There's so, there's like a million possibilities of what can cause drift. So uh, I, the order of operations is interesting. Where if you had drift detection. <laughs> You'd probably have an easier sell to go to management that, hey, look at all these problems that we have uh, that we didn't know about. But now that we're doing, we have drift detection, we, we see the problem. The problem is that in order to do the drift detection, you have to have some standardization on, uh, on how your, sorry, some just Alexa distractions there. Uh, you have to have some, 
visibility on what workspaces you have in Terraform, uh, what projects you have, what repositories are doing Terraform. And uh, oftentimes, if you're at the stage of maturity where you're doing Terraform locally, some of those standard uh, ways of doing it haven't materialized. Uh, I'm so I'm going to pause there before I keep uh, talking about that, but I have more to add to that. Any any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, are people using just crafting their own kind of CI/CD pipelines to do it, or do you just are people just making cron jobs that run Terraform plan and sends them the output, or what's the? Yeah. Yeah, so there, there are two fundamental approaches, uh, high level to doing this. There's... Seems like Alexa has an opinion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a new automation that I need to uh, adjust there, I think. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> a little distracted. Yeah, high level. Uh, one is doing something like uh, code coverage where you're literally evaluate, you're literally looking at your deployed infrastructure. Let's take Amazon for an example. You're looking at every single resource there and you're trying to map that to some resource in one of your many different Terraform states. Uh, so that's, that's the, I would say the best kind of drift detection because that catches things that uh, might have been uh, originally deployed with ClickOps and were never caught in code. So that this gives you a, an understanding of your true infrastructure as code coverage. There's one tool out there that does that. It's called Drift CTL. And I think mm. it's, I think it's come up so many times on office hours, but I think most recently it came up. I'm not sure if it's uh, looking for uh, maintainers. Um, yeah, so it was uh, acquired by Sneak, and uh, the project is now in maintenance mode. So uh, that doesn't bode well for that project. Mm -hmm. Now, the other way that every single other implementation does is the most straightforward and easy to do. So you could say Drift CTL, this gives you 20%. You know, in the Pareto principle, this gives you 8, 20% more visibility into what drifts at 80% more effort uh, to do versus, uh, you know, just run Terraform plan and, you know, uh, look at the exit code and then determine if you have uh, drift that way. However, doing that is actually a lot of work. Um, you have to know all the workspaces. You have to look at those status codes. You have to communicate and escalate that in some way. Um, you, you would like to be notified sooner rather than later. So you'd like to run it like every few hours or at least once a day. But if you do a naive implementation that just sends an email or sends a Slack message, you're going to quickly get just silence all those alerts because it's just going to be stack drifted, stack drifted, stack drifted, stack drifted, the same thing over and over again. So, uh, Cloud Posse has a solution for that. Uh, it's open source, but it assumes that you use our Atmos tooling. Um, so Atmos is a tool uh, that helps you define your configuration for all your Terraform as code, as YAML. 
and then it has workflows to run your Terraform and it works with vanilla Terraform. Uh, it works better if you write Terraform a certain way, uh, but it works with vanilla Terraform. Um, and then we have integrations here uh, with GitHub Actions, assuming you're using GitHub Actions. Um, and uh, the, the workflows for um, drift detection, we haven't published yet, uh, but they're part of our uh, Cloud Posse reference architecture. And uh, I guess I can show a teaser kind of what that looks like infra. Oops, let's open it in YouTube. So uh, drift detection uh, runs in this one, I believe has some warnings here, but here's kind of a, an example of what drift detection might look like um, if you were to implement this. You'd go through, uh, find all of your configured Terraform, run a Terraform plan, and um, you know show summary of uh, what changed if that happened. Mm -hmm. And then you can show that we also open up the GitHub issue to track yeah. all of the drift as well. So then, and then, uh, and so you don't spam people, you open up a GitHub issue when, uh, when there's drift, and then you can assign that uh, to somebody to fix it. Um, and if you actually want that change, you can actually apply that uh, right here. Hmm. So this sounds like this is like a non-open part of the cloud posse reference architecture. Uh, there's stuff we just don't really publish yet. Uh, I'm sure we're going to publish this soon. We just haven't gotten around to publishing and making it public. The All the bits and pieces, the nuts and bolts are all free and public. Um, and that's what's kind of special about what we do. Uh, absolutely everything, the building blocks are all free and public. Uh, the only thing we are a little bit uh, delayed at publishing publicly is how we do it. So that's what we prioritize in all of our customer engagements. Um, so at docs.cloudposse.com is where we have uh, like all of our building blocks, our components, modules, GitHub Actions, Atmos. Uh, but our reference architecture here, this is the piece that's um, behind a paywall uh, and uh, which is uh, what we reserve for customers at this time. Uh, bits and pieces of this reference architecture is what we um, uh, release over time uh, and make public, uh, but we kind of keep the bleeding edge um, uh, for customers at this time. And the, the GitHub action stuff is uh, something we will be publishing next year, hopefully early next year, we're gonna be publishing an example repository uh, with all the workflows you need to get up and running with drift detection, Terraform plan, apply, uh, and all those behaviors uh, in GitHub Actions out of the box. Cool. Uh, any other questions we can get answered? It's a, uh, yeah, so Craig was posting, it's interesting. Uh, so the, the, 
the security team forbids this. So the security team is the one that requires local Terraform plan and apply. Um, and it's just interesting how two security teams can see totally opposite side, opposite ways of what is the secure way of doing it. Yeah, yeah when your 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 security team trusts the laptops more than they do things running in a cloud infrastructure to manage the cloud infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think my my guess, if you boil it all down, is that they don't have a good understanding of how Terraform works because what they're doing is um, is definitely not the most secure way to handle like deployments to production of production infrastructure um, or what they're making you do. So, yeah, things like being able to see plans and then do approvals and then have the plan that the exact plan that you approved be the thing that actually gets like deployed to your production environment is definitely more secure than letting Craig do whatever he wants in production, you know, by just running Terraform applying. No offense, Craig, but <laughs> it's just like not a, uh, it's just not a, uh, a well understood thing would be my guess. Yeah. I was trying to find, um, there's a famous uh, post-mortem on some crypto company, some Web3 company that was hacked. And it was ultimately because one of the admins whose laptop was compromised um, was the weakest link. And they didn't figure that out in time out of frustration, like they, 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 they realized they were hacked, money was stolen. They uh, reprovisioned everything, hacked again. They thought it was maybe the AMIs. Uh, so I think they started over in a whole new Amazon account or something or a whole new cloud account <laughs> compromised <laughs> because the attacker just kept going through uh, the laptop. Yeah, the, 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 that scenario was that the one of the um, admins credentials was leaked. So they kept using the same keys over and over again. But but I believe they'd they'd uh, like enable like RDP or something on his laptop, uh, and th they were able to even, yeah. Ultimately, it was a credential th uh, theft, um, uh, and then some. Yeah, well, we we've remedied we've addressed that situation by being um, absolutely rabid about key rotation. Yeah, and hopefully MFA as well. Yes, uh, yeah, of course. Um, we we in general try to avoid even using AWS um, secret keys and access IDs when possible and you know, rely on things like, you know, SSO and identity center and um, instance profiles and et cetera. Yeah. We don't even have credentials to, to leak. That is ideal. So if we have two minutes and no one else has something else. I just, I'll just bring up a story I heard um, just recently, but I guess it happened a few years ago. I had never heard of this that, um, do you know Ant, Ant Design, which is like, a, it's like a React design library that, I don't know, has like over 80,000 stars on GitHub. Um, and obviously like a ton of different people use it. 
So apparently um, the, the developers or a developer decided to put in uh, an Easter egg, quote unquote, but it was like a Christmas egg, where if the date was December 25th, that it would change all the labels on buttons to say ho, 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 or something like that. And it got leaked into the actual code base and like all these major retailers and people that were using it, like every one of their buttons on their website said <laughs> ho, ho, ho on December 25th and people were freaking out because they had no idea like where it was coming from or how it happened. And the, the answer that their official answer was that they intentionally put it in there. And if you didn't want that to be the case, that you should target your CSS to like remove the the extra CSS tag that they put on there only on December twenty fifth um, to add this thing. Like they had the worst one of the worst responses I've ever seen. But um, I actually didn't hear it happening when it actually happened. But uh, someone I know just pointed out to me recently, and I was uh, I was kind of shaking my head like I can't believe that this actually happened. <laughs> So I don't know. It's like people do wacky things. So uh, you know, never trust, never trust anything you don't have to trust. I guess <laughs> that's the lesson of the story. Yeah. Did, was there a news post on that? Um, I saw it on. I googled it and I found it on like Reddit. Like Reddit actually talked about it. Um, but it was like four or five. Yeah, five years ago. It says <laughs> when it actually happened. But I uh, I just heard. Uh, here, I just dropped it in the chat, um, the Reddit post about it. But I, I just heard about it recently. And I was I couldn't believe that that was true. And if you look through the whole thing, it, it has like the code and you can actually dig through to the code and find the commit and who, you know, <laughs> who did it and, you know, everything else. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So imagine you've developed with this system and then you have some major like retailer, you know, using it like, you know, Best Buy or someone. And then people go to, you know, go to shop on Christmas Day and um, all the buttons say, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with some people running. All right. Well, thanks everyone for participating today. We are at time. Uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to our YouTube channel uh, or would like to share this session with your team, the best way is to go to youtube.com slash cloudposse and subscribe. Uh, you'll get updates when there's a new video. Uh, for those of you joining through our YouTube channel or a recording, uh, such as our podcast, you can register for these sessions uh, live at cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, cloudposse.com slash office hours. Our podcast is just a syndication of Office Hours, so you can listen to it, catch up on uh, past episodes. However you listen to podcasts, go to podcast.cloudposse.com. Lastly, if you're interested in working with Cloud Posse and seeing if we can move the needle for you at your organization, uh, just go to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and you'll book a session with me directly. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Same time, same place. <laughs>